Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We continue our, continue our look in this book. 1 Samuel. We'll be looking at the first 18 verses of this chapter today, <clears throat> dealing with the kingship of Saul and as we see uh, the beginnings of a transition of kingship even here in chapter 13. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are here among your people. Uh, we pray that you would help us and guide us through your word, bring the truth that we might see it, bring it to bear on our lives, on our hearts, that we might be convicted of our sins, that we might live lives of repentance that we might serve and obey you, and that we might see your kingdom come even here in Murray, Kentucky. Teach us through your word. Show us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage this week, it kind of made me think of some different times in my life that I could look at and think, from this point forward, Everything is going to change. You know, most of us remember thinking that way on 9-11. If you were alive, some of you weren't alive. But I remember thinking, wow, this is a sign of things to come. This is a major change in the way that I think about life. Um, and for a, a less serious note, I remember back in 2001, watching, same year, watching Albert Pujols hit his home run, hit his first home run in his second major league at bat, and I thought, things are going to start turning around for us, Cardinals, that is. Call it us because, you know, we're so close to linked. If you're a Cardinals fan, you had to endure the early 90s and all the badness that was going on there, and, and we were due. You know, we So seeing Pujols bat and hit the ball so hard, and I was like, man, this is going to be awesome, and it, and it was. We turned out to be one of the best teams in Baseball, even with Google selling out for money, going someplace else. Um, and we have a change in leadership happening this Friday, right? Um, with the inauguration of President-elect Clinton, or Clinton. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Why did I do that? President-elect Trump. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm... I'm stuck in the 90s, right, with the bad cardinals. Um, and so, uh, with Trump being inaugurated... And for better or worse, we'll see, right, whether it's going to be better or worse. But rest assured, it's definitely going to be different than the previous 30 or so years have been, or even more so or back further than that. Change isn't always bad, even though we sometimes don't like it, but we all approach change, whether we like it or not, with a bit of trepidation. Because it usually means from that point forward, we have to do our lives differently. Our assumptions change. Our categories change. We have to kind of rewrite the things that make us feel comfortable, whether it's a sports team or the government or even a change of heart, you know, like the, like the regeneration of a new Christian. It's a sign of things to come. And so in our text today, we have Saul acting like the king of Israel, fulfilling the promises that he made in his kingdom, going out to crush the Philistines and liberate the Israelites from their constant oppression. 
or at least that's the hope. And I think here in this passage, Saul's leadership really starts to show some problems. And not, I think, I know, it's actually happening. Even as we've seen some inklings of this in the past, it's actually coming to fruition here. And some of the decisions that we're going to see in this text are definitely a sign of things to come. With this story, we obviously stand on this side of things. We're observers of this history, even critics of it. But what about when it comes to our own lives? Are there times that we could look back and say, I wish I would have saw the signs that were all around me, the signs of things that were to come? I wish that I would have changed things before they got bad or or whatever. I think we all have those things to varying degrees in our lives. Even even you younger people, you kind of have those thoughts, well, I wish I would have saw that or I wish I would have known. We worship a God who not only forgives, but removes our sins, we're told, as far as the east is from the west. However, part of our condition in living the sin life and kind of struggling with our new nature and our old natures at the same time, is that we have a hard time letting go. And so today's text, I think, serves as a warning for us, but it also serves as a reminder for us that it's Jesus, not us or some other contrived hero of our own designs that saves. Jesus is the one that saves us, and he delivers us from our own mess. And we'll see that as we consider three main ideas from the text this morning. A sign of things to come, an attempt to do right, and then a man after God's heart. And so with that, let's read the text. Let's stand together as we do so in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 18. Starting at verse 1. Saul was one years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel, and chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. That was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all the, and all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel became a, had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash and, or to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling, 
He waited seven days, the, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he, and he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet with the army. Then they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, one the land of Shul, or to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And so, as we come to this text, we need a little background. <clears throat> you may have picked up, as we were reading through the text, that there are some textual problems here. And what I mean by that, what I mean by textual problems, is that there are some disagreement on how several of these passages should be translated because the Hebrew is very confusing, just to put it lightly. For instance, in verse 1, concerning Saul's age and the time that he was in office, these are disputed. The number of chariots in verse 5, the 30,000 chariots, the general timeline of the text in, in general, how many, does it occur many years after chapter 12 or just a few days? You know, verse 8 makes it kind of hard where he talks about he's waiting the appointed time for Samuel. In chapter 10, we hear that Samuel told him to wait seven days. Well, if it's been several years since that, why is he still waiting those seven days? And have those seven days came to pass in just seven days or what is a long period of time? You know, in Saul, we're told earlier in the book that he was a young man, but here he has a son named Jonathan that's old enough to lead troops. And so again, this can be confusing. Saul was obviously not one years old when he took the kingship, and he did not reign until he was two. And so some of these Hebrew words are confusing. And there's been some things that have been done with that, and your, your text probably says something different, and there are probably several different renditions in this room. And so, with all of that, none of those issues 
strike at the vitals of this text, of what we should understand here, none of them make the scripture somehow less dependable. And so let's make sure we are careful with that. We still trust that God's word is complete and is perfect in its original content, which we believe that's what we have. We know that God keeps and preserves his words, and we know that each passage points us to Jesus Christ. And so rather than focusing on these textual problems, which I think is easy for us to do, we all like, all of us here like to do that sort of thing. And I think it's a good thing to study that sort of thing by itself. But this morning from the pulpit, we'll focus on Christ and see how he shows up here in this text. And so with that, we'll consider the first point, a sign of things to come. And so here we have, in this passage, we have sometime after Saul became king. Again, we don't know how much time, but sometime after Saul became king, he gathered this army up. He had his son Jonathan gather an army up as well. And then we read in verse 3 that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And what happened? Well, Saul blew a trumpet throughout the land saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Do we notice anything wrong there from our new king, or maybe old king at this point? Jonathan defeated them, but somehow Israel heard that Saul had defeated them. Maybe it had something to do with Saul blowing the trumpet throughout all of Israel. Secondly, Who's out fighting his dad's battles? Jonathan is fighting the battles that his father should be in. Saul is the appointed champion of Israel, but here is Jonathan fighting his father's battles, and we'll continue to see that same theme throughout the text, throughout the the book. Saul was put in charge, but Jonathan's doing all the work. And honestly... As I read through this text, I did not pick up on this, this first section of this. And I read a commentary by a pastor I greatly respect. He's a—he's actually a minister in our own denomination. His name's Ralph Davis. He wrote a commentary on 1 Samuel. He actually wrote a commentary on all the historical books of the Old Testament. Strongly encourage you to pick those up. They're not hard to read. They're not a lot of Hebrew and that sort of thing. Um, but as I read this, Dr. Davis pulled out an idea and saw this idea as a foreboding, a sign that things were beginning to go south for the new king. And he made an interesting application with this about how it might apply to our own lives, and I found it very helpful. For instance, he told a story about a family that he knew when he was a senior pastor at the church in Mississippi, where the wife of this particular family, was doing a great job uh, teaching her kids the faith. She was praying with them. She was catechizing the children, teaching them the catechisms, reading the scriptures to them, taking them to church. This is not a bad story at all, right? I mean, it's, it sounds like a great success that, that these children are being raised up in the Lord the way they should be. But what's our immediate question concerning the story? Where's that? Where's the husband? Why isn't he doing what he should be doing? 
Why isn't he leading this family? And so what Dr. Davis said is that even these good things, like the wife leading her children, this success story, so to speak, can have a bit of foreboding to it. And I think it's real helpful for us in the same way, particularly coming off last week's text, which asked us to do what? Remember last week's text in 1 Samuel 12 that asked us to, to fear the Lord and to obey and serve the Lord. And how we looked at that. And we, I think for us, it's very important for us to regularly check our lives on this task. Are we doing that? Or are there these small little signs that are pointing to something greater that might happen or that is happening? We need to regularly look at our own lives. However, we also need to have other people look into them because we tend to be big fans of ourselves. And so there could be trouble lurking and us not even know it because when we look in the mirror, we just see absolute greatness. That's not always the case. Most of the time it's not. And so I think we need to walk together in this task as believers. When we see trouble, we have to be quick to address it in other people's lives, particularly us as a group here at Redeemer. We have to help one another with that. We help our own Christian friends as they're struggling and whatever it is. Maybe they don't even know they're struggling, and we have to show them. Because we're going to see that Saul really doesn't get that he's struggling that something's wrong before it gets way out of hand. And then even then, he gets hardened in that. And so it's important for us, I think, to regularly check ourselves on this. And so the ire of the Philistines were kindled, or was kindled, and they brought this kind of shock and awe to the battlefield. You get this verse 5, they, had, they brought 30,000 chariots. Some translations may say 3,000 doesn't really matter. That's a lot of chariots, uh, especially if you just have a couple thousand troops. And 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. All these troops, all these chariots and horses, you could have felt them coming. You could have seen their campfires. It would have looked like stars in the sky. There would have been so many of them. And what did Israel do when they saw this? Well, we get a, a nice uh, picture of what they did, starting in verse 6. They hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some even crossed the Jordan. You know, you think, you kind of see what's going on here. They hid in some caves. Well, that sounds about right. Right? I mean, okay, we're afraid. Let's go hide. Maybe they won't look in here. That's what everybody thinks. Famous last words. Well, then they hid in tombs. What's wrong with this? Were the Hebrew people supposed to come in contact with dead, dead people? No. It would make them unclean. So they willingly made themselves unclean to hide from their enemies. And just when you think it was bad, it gets worse. Some of them crossed the Jordan. What happens when you cross the Jordan if you're an Israelite? You're now leaving the promised land. So some of these Israelites left the promised land, the one that was promised to them that the Lord said this will be your inheritance in order to get away from those 
grubby Philistines. What does this sound like here? This sounds like some sort of horrible digression, doesn't it? From caves, then to making themselves unclean, and then to just leaving their promised land altogether. And the question is for us, wasn't Saul supposed to save them? Weren't they supposed to trust in him? Why didn't they trust him? Doesn't a real leader inspire courage rather than fear? And what was Saul's response to this? Well, his army stayed there in Gilgal, which is kind of one of the worship centers of of the Hebrew people. And I love that the text reminds us, Saul was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembling. They were afraid as they followed their fearless leader. Where's the courage? Where's the conviction? Well, we'll see that Saul attempts to do things right, but it's pretty bad. And that's our next point, is that Paul's attempt, or Saul's attempt to do things right. And again, Saul meant well in this passage, as we read it. He meant well, but I don't think his motivations were altogether pure. He's there in Gilgal. He's waiting on Samuel as he's been instructed. Maybe he was instructed seven actual days ago. Maybe this seven-day period is different from the seven-day period we read about in chapter 10. Again, we don't know. The point is, Samuel or Saul was instructed to wait on Samuel for seven days. And it's now the seventh day, and what's going on here? The people are starting to scatter. They're starting to scatter. They're leaving. They're afraid. They're going to their caves and tombs. They're going to cross the Jordan. And Saul thinks, I've got it. I'll just sprinkle some religion on this, sprinkle some of that magic sacrifice dust, And maybe they'll all of a sudden not be afraid anymore. Let's see if that works. So he offers the burnt offering without Samuel being there. What's the problem? Saul's not authorized to offer the burnt offering. That's Samuel's job. And so he offers this sacrifice for the people. And, of course, Samuel shows up the second after that happens. But think, let's get into into Saul's mind a little bit here. He's trying to make the people feel better, right, about their situation. It's not a great situation that they're in. Um, Maybe he's thinking, if I can just add a little God to the situation, then things will get better. I mean, does that sound familiar? You can easily relate with this idea. I think the same idea is one of the major failings of evangelicalism today. It's my opinion. Um, that we that we have our thing, whatever that thing is, our own lives that we're living, and that we can somehow simply add God to that and make it better, kind of like adding sugar to tea. Well, I'm basically a good person who does basically good things, and I need a little help now and then, so of course, and of course I want to be saved from hell, so come on Jesus, you can play on my team. Jesus, you can put on a uniform that says Team Chipman, and we'll we'll you can come to bat for me every once in a while. But you're going to play on my team. And that and that what people say? Not, not really, but kind of. Or it may even take this form. This is one of my favorites. It's even been immortalized in a song. Well, 
I've been in control for so long that I realize that's bad. So here you go, Jesus. You can take the wheel of my car. You can drive now. We don't worship a God that can be somehow manipulated by our wishes or our actions. He is not a genie that can be called into action by simply kind of rubbing some magic feel-good lamp. He is God, creator, and almighty. He does as he pleases. He is not going to be called into action by burning some sheep. So for Saul to somehow think that he can do that by offering a sacrifice is a direct affront to God's authority. It's an attempt to control the one, the one thing in all of creation, in all the universe, who can't be controlled. And Saul is just a pawn in this game, and he doesn't realize it. We all are, really. That isn't to say that we don't have some, we don't have our own agency, that we don't make decisions, that we can't think for ourselves. Obviously, we do. Obviously, we do. However, we must understand that the God that we worship isn't one that somehow waits for us. We wait on him. Saul got it wrong. And he'll pay for his attack on the sovereignty of God. And we can't see this as any less. This is an attack on the authority of God. And we're going to continue to see this exact same pattern in Saul's life as we go forward. And so what did he get for, for what he did? Well, he was cast away from the kingship. Look at verses 13 and 14, first part of 14. Samuel gets there. He sees what's happened. Saul gives him this kind of lame excuse. Well, I thought, okay. And this is what Samuel says. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Saul's sin earned him the loss of his kingdom. And we may look at this and I think, well, come on, Samuel. It's not that big a deal, right? He was just trying to do good for his people. He was he really wanted to see his people do well. He really wanted to call down the favor of the Lord by burning up some animals. He really wanted what was best, right? We may think it's harsh. We may think God is even somehow being a little mean here. But then we might also forget God's view of sin, right? What does all sin deserve? Is sin simply a mistake that we commit? Whoops, sorry. Is that something that Saul did here? Just a mistake? It was an attack on God's sovereignty. Of course it's serious. What would Saul have done if someone said, I'm about to take your kingdom over? He would have had him killed. What does our sin deserve? What did Saul's sin deserve for attempting to take over the sovereignty of his creator? Death. What did he get instead? Mercy. There were consequences for his sin, sure. He's no longer going to be the king of Israel, or the right king of Israel. 
However, he did not get what he fully deserved. And so here's an act of mercy on the part of the Lord. This is showing constraint. And somehow our notions of mercy can be skewed into thinking that mercy is only when there when everything turns out all right. Sometimes it does for our own sins, those times when we act foolishly, and we know we have them. The mercy lies in the fact that we aren't struck down immediately, brothers and sisters. We see that in the New Testament, right? We see those people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that I believe we'll meet in heaven one day. But they sinned against the apostle. They sinned against the Holy Spirit. They were struck down. The fact that consequences remain is a way to grow us up and to shape us in our faith. Remember, God works on us from our salvation until the day we die, and we call that process sanctification. It's a good thing. Part of that process is us putting away the sin in our lives. And that process can be a very painful thing. And at this point, Saul lost his kingdom. But he hadn't lost his chance to serve the Lord. He hadn't lost his chance to obey and to fear the Lord in a right way. Saul had a chance. But what we're going to see here in this text as we go through it, and I think it's very instructive for our lives, is that instead he grows more hard and hard in his sin. To the point that he's lost. He's gone. He's no longer able. He's so he's so hardened in his sin. And again, there isn't a middle ground with God. There's repentance, which we never see in his life, or there's a deeper dive into the sin nature. And so we have to be careful to guard against this. We have to live our lives of repentance. We have to keep short accounts with one another. We have to keep short accounts with God in order to safeguard against this coming in our own lives. And so our last point then is a man after God's own heart. And so what does Samuel do? He tells us the second part of verse 14 there. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He prophesies concerning the next leader of Israel, since he has sought out a man after God's own heart. You know, this is kind of where the movie cuts to the little boy playing his harp in the field with the sheep. Because we know that this is talking about David, right? This is David, the future and great king of Israel. So again, the Lord has chosen a leader for Israel. And of course the problem is, that we may want to ask is, well why did the Lord choose Saul only to see him fail? I don't know. Uh, but I, he had his good reasons for that. But this is our first look at David in Scripture. I think the book of Ruth uh, culminates to bring along David's uh, family line to see where he comes from and ultimately to see where Christ comes from. But this is the first mention of David that we see in Scripture. David, a man after God's own heart. So with that, turn with me to Psalm chapter 89. 
We read Psalm 89 from our call to worship this morning, the first part of that, but I want to read for you the second part of that, um, or the middle part of that psalm, concerning the life of David. And so what I want you to hear in this passage is consider what we've talked about so far. The sinfulness of the leader of Israel, the covenant love of God, and see how this is tied up in this new leader that's to come, David. So look with me, Psalm 89, we'll start at verse 20. Since I have found David, my servant, with him, or with my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him, and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea, and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. In his, If his children forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes. My favorite parts here. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love, or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant, or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever a faithful witness in the skies. It's incredible, right? It's a great testimony to what? David? No. To God's faithfulness. How he would raise up a man to do his work. How he would establish that man's steps and see it, see to it that that work be completed. Notice the sins don't go unpunished. They don't remove, but do they remove the terms of the covenant? Do they change God's promises? No, because he will come himself. Who is this passage ultimately talking about? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is who this is ultimately talking about. He will send one who is after his own heart and can't ever be less. He will send his Son. And that's the last bit here. The Lord will come himself. This, this man after God's own heart that Samuel speaks of, yes, is David, but David ultimately points to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn with me quickly to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We have one who was formerly named Saul. No connection. Just think it's interesting. 
speaking here. Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 23. This is Paul speaking to the people at Pisidia, and he says this, Now Paul and his companions set sail from, or 16, sorry. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of his of this people, Israel, chose our, fa- chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land of their inheritance. All of this took place about four, all of this took place about 450 years. And after he had given them judges until Samuel the prophet, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. I love how Paul, the apostle, knew this story, and what did he do? He connected it to our Lord Jesus. The fact that that this is about Jesus reminds us that we aren't the man after God's own heart and that God loves us anyway. Remember, we are a people who scattered in fear when our false gods failed us. And we still do that. Just as Saul's soldiers, there are times we might do dumb things and we're afraid. We may even try, like Saul, to throw religion at something, hoping that our thimble full of piety would somehow make us feel better. But we have a Savior, a man after his Father's heart, who pursues us even while we are in the depths of our sin, and who brings us back into the fold. For the believer, he keeps us even when we don't want to be kept. Thank the Lord. For the unbeliever, he calls you too. In fact, it's his voice alone that can call you from the depths of despair and into his marvelous light of his mercy and his grace. And if you hear his voice today, call upon his name, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. But for Christians, in conclusion, again, let us be on guard. We live in perilous times. And in perilous times, when the enemies seem as vast as the sands on the seashore, we may be tempted to do stupid things like run and hide and even cross away from the promised land. That'd be silly. Somehow think we're in control of the situation, right? Let's cling to Jesus, the one in control, the one who came to fulfill the promises of God. In those promises, you're safe. And you're saved. He has you. Take comfort. And let us be on guard for one another as well. Let us live in such a way that encourages the input of our brothers and sisters in our lives, lest we delve deeper into sin's grasp, into the depths of sin, 
we need each other to do this. The Lord has given us each other. We have the church so that we can walk together. So let us walk together without fear and with hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the man after your Father's heart, because we aren't. We want to be. We desperately want that. So, Lord, help us. Strengthen us. Grow us. Mold us and shape us. Keep us close to you. Show us our sin. Teach us from your word daily. Help us to walk together. Help us to show one another where we fail, that we might walk stronger hand in hand. In your name we pray. Amen.